0: This week on Hangar Talk, the slowest long-distance flights you can possibly imagine.
1: And summer's right around the corner, so parents, sharpen your pencils for some summer STEM camp ideas.
0: Also, Dave, you're going to be telling us about charting or maybe just numbers.
1: That's right, Ian. We were at the FAA headquarters in Washington, D.C., for the External Data Access Initiative, what's it mean?
0: Oh boy, uh, that one, it's important. We'll, we'll listen, and also uh, a little more exciting, Michael Goulian, right? He's ripping it up on the Red Bull race course. Okay, we've got him this week, so Dave, you ready to do the show? Let's do it. Welcome to Hangar Talk, I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Toulis. And Dave, uh, we're going to do the top five headlines. Number five, I'm going to leave to you because you were there at the meeting. This is exciting. I know it's important, though.
1: Actually, it was really cool, Ian. Uh, We we are fueled by coffee and donuts and some goodwill. The FAA hosted several stakeholders to talk about getting some of their data out into the open, they have a huge amount of data in their vaults, and we're going to see what we can do in the private sector to use some of that better.
0: Yeah, I've heard about this. So I guess the deal is that um, the FAA, they produce charts now, right? So not only do they collect the data, but they also print and uh, and distribute those correct.
1: charts. Correct. You're correct, Ian. And I think what they really want to do is get out of the chart-making and product division and get into the data access uh, dissemination business. It's a little bit easier for them. It could increase safety for pilots, it could reduce our costs. And at the end of the day, it's a win-win situation for
0: everybody. Yeah. So other than FAA, who who was there? Who was at the meeting?
1: We had members. There were a lot of computer programmers there. It was something a little bit short of a hackathon, to be honest <laughs> with you. But we had folks from uh, SkyVector, ForeFlight, AOPA, of course, was there. We had members of the uh, FAA steering committee there, Garmin, and a whole bunch of uh, independent software developers as well.
0: Yeah. So... All those folks interested in what they might be able to do with the FAA's info once it's disseminated—that's
1: true. And what it is right now, you know, the FAA has all these products, and I think they get bogged down a little bit with that. And really, in a free market economy, it could be better for pilots and a little bit less expensive for us too. Moving forward, if we have you know people who really know how to do the software, do the software.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, obviously, we've seen what they've done with EFBS and uh, for flight and everything else. So that's uh, that's cool. Also, uh, lots going on in terms of show season. There's been three or four big shows just over the past couple of weeks. We've had uh, Aero Friedrichshafen over in Germany. A couple of neat things came out of that. AEA, and then two drone conferences.
1: That's right. Jim Moore, who is uh, one of our associate editors at AOPA uh, ePilot online, he went to the San Francisco drone show and has a lot to tell us about that. You know, the drone industry is heating up even more. I think that FAA is having a little bit of growing pains, if you will, with that industry,
0: yeah, I know they've uh, come under a lot of pressure for not putting out the regs yet and uh, and I can understand why I mean people are trying to use these things commercially in fact, one of the things is there's a backup, right, for these um, special authorizations, and us included, AOPA included. True, true,
1: Ian. The FAA has about 12,000 Section 333 petitions, and they're wading through that, and it's a real time-consuming process.
0: Yeah, so once the rules go through, of course, they won't have to go through each individual. One as a regulatory petition, a regulatory uh, easement. It's just you follow the regs and you go, and I I guess at least based on the uh the proposed regs, it looks like I know under the three thirty threes you gotta have a sport pilot certificate at least to operate at the drone, but Maybe at least under proposed regs, that's not going to happen. And you know
1: what? what's interesting about what you just said? A good friend of mine, Bob Snow, down in Florida, is just getting ready to get involved with uh, with the uh, Sport Pilot Initiative, and he already has drone experience. So Bob, like many of our members, are very, very interested in how this whole drone world will, will come to be.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because AEA, the, the electronics group, you would think that would have been big on drones at the show, but... Um, Based on uh, on what I know from our folks who went, not a whole lot going on. They talked a lot about uh, connectivity. So the idea to text or get on the web from your cockpit. I I don't know. Are you into that? I don't know.
1: You know, uh, I think I made the mistake of paying attention to a text message right when I was strapping into one of our 172s a couple of months ago. And my instructor, Mr. Dave Hirschman, wrapped me on the knuckles pretty hard about that. And really, it's either fly the plane or text message. Yeah. You really can't do both. I do see how uh, how electronics can help the pilot in an emergency situation. And also, we we definitely all rely on things like ForeFlight or uh, um, SkyVector. We've got several other Garmin has a great app right now, so that we use that kind of data in the cockpit right now. That's used differently than text messaging, though.
0: Yeah, than planning out what you're going to have for dinner once you land and everything else.
1: True enough. But, you know, it just comes to my mind that AOPA has a really cool flight planner as well and a Go app uh, application. And those also interface really well in the cockpit. And we'll, I think we'll find out some more interesting things about our own app in the near future.
0: Yeah, in fact, in fact, I think we're missing a meeting right now about it. So <laughs> Yes, we are, but let's do the show. That's right. Um, okay, other stuff going on is... Um, Part 23, this is another one that's, oh, man, it's complicated. Uh, Very critical. Um, The skinny here, I guess, is is what? That uh, FAA wants to go from these very strict standards where they tell you how to certify an airplane to more a framework that they would allow you to certify within that hopefully allows for more innovation.
1: You know, I think if the barrier to aviation is lowered just a little bit, and, of course, every every little thing helps, and that just does nothing but help us increase our safety, lower the cost, bring more pilots in, and really have a lot
0: more fun. So one airplane, could you imagine being certified under this solar impulse? Solar panels, thousands and thousands of solar panels, they've been going around the world I'm trying not to be like a crotchety old guy about this and be skeptical of it and say, man, is it slow? And oh my gosh, what's the point? So, so make me see the light on this. Well,
1: even a Prius will burn rubber, Ian, yeah. if you if <laughs> uh, know what you're doing behind the wheel. So the uh, Solar Impulse is a four-engine aircraft. And of course, it's solar powered. Now, the downside is that there's a lot of technology that needs to be babysat, if you will. And in fact... Weren't they babysitting this plane for,
0: like, five months in Hawaii? Yeah, it's bad. And I, I know they went – I mean, the thing to me that's amazing is actually the human toll, the fact that these guys are in this airplane. It's like, what was, Hawaii to California, 62 hours, I think.
1: That's a ways to go without a restroom break. I
0: mean, can you imagine? It's, it's phenomenal. Um, and then even from L.A. to Phoenix – which they just did 16 hours. I mean, that's incredible.
1: That's a long time. But, you know, I think it is just to prove the technology is out there. And how will it trickle down to us? I mean, are there technologies with with battery and solar power that will help us as pilots in the future? I would like to say I'm going to vote for I'm OK with going low and slow and being powered by the sun.
0: Yeah, that would be pretty neat. I know um I mean, I will say the electric motor standpoint of that is really promising, you know, whether it's battery or solar or whatever. Um, we've had, I know we've flown a few of them around the world, and some of them are, I mean, they're there, you know, for, let's say, pattern trainers or go out and fly for an hour, it's like, quick swap batteries it's basically performs like an lsa and it, it's an airplane you know
1: if you're staying around the pattern and uh, doing some training work really that could not be a bad idea it actually is a thumbs up if you're going to do some work or right around the home airport and just not go too far i mean why not save some money and and electric battery powered sure let's do it
0: yeah yeah so okay you ready for this transition speaking of the sun Summer camp, it's coming up. Summer's coming up. You, I know, are really passionate about kids. Uh, I've been covering a lot of different camps and uh, other things that kids can do during the summer. So what's, what's going on this year?
1: There are some fantastic summer STEM camps for middle schoolers and high schoolers, Ian. And really, if you look around the country, there's something in almost every corner. For instance, down at uh, Lakeland Linder Airport, the home of Sun and Fun, there's a, what they call the STEM-tastic five-day summer camp. That's really cool. And, you know, kids learn inside an old 727 jet airliner.
0: Yeah, I saw that at Sun of Un. That is super cool.
1: That is neat. And the uh, the end of that particular week of summer camp ends up uh, where where some of the kids can get into a uh, Piper Cherokee, and they kind of fly up and down the coast a little bit and log some cross-country time. That's awesome. So that's realistic. I'm going to tell you about another one that I didn't know about until I started doing some research, but... Down in north carolina on the east coast at triad aviation they have a summer camp academy as well and that's um, and uh, they're going to be in a i guess a two person discovery xl you ever heard of that plane
0: oh yeah it used to be the liberty used to be yeah, the liberty yeah. that's right
1: and those uh, aero camp sessions are for people uh, young people aged 12 to 16 i hadn't mentioned the prices and i'm i'm going to hold <laughs> off on that i don't want to <laughs> shock the parents on some of this uh,
0: i've paid for camp I, i'm ready for it, there, I'm ready that, for it
1: i mean it's a good thing for for kids who are interested in aviation and i've got a 13 year old daughter and i've taken her up and she really likes flying but this is another way to experience flight and really learn a little bit more about ground school Mm -hmm. a little bit about planning cross country things like that Mm -hmm. i'm gonna throw two more at you real quick one is uh, at the air zoo in west michigan have you ever heard of this place
0: i have and you know what you ready plug plug we're having a fly-in there this year, right? At it, uh, Battle, Battle Creek. Creek.
1: That's right, Battle yeah. Creek. In fact, just a brief segue, we've got Battle Creek, we've got uh, Bremerton, Washington, and we've got Prescott, Arizona. So as people are making their summer camp plans, they also need to make their summer fly-in, AOPA fly-in, regional fly-in plans um one more camp to consider this is a little bit more serious if you're over near south dakota it's called the south dakota state university ace camp that's a four-day camp and that's really for career-minded high school kids that really want to get a a, a foothold in aviation hmm. another good idea
0: you remember uh, are they still doing space camp down and Al- out. What was it? Alabama? No, it was in Huntsville? Wasn't it Huntsville, Alabama? Yeah. They do Space Camp. In fact, I might be old for that, but I still want to go check it out. I know. Seriously, I wanted to do that so bad when I was a kid. Can I? How how old? I is, don't, there an, or is there an age cap? Can we we'll, still go? We'll
1: find out <laughs> yeah. for the next session of That's Hanger right. Talk.
0: <laughs> All right, so uh, so let's move on. Uh, we got a really cool interview with Mike Gulian. I want to get to um, Julie Walker shadowed him in Vegas. She went out for the race last year. Um, and kind of spent a weekend with him with Red Bull and then caught up with him at uh, Sun and Fun.
1: And he's been flying for quite a while. I mean, didn't he start uh, in a Cessna 150? He soloed at on 16th birthday?
0: Yeah, his parents actually owned a flight school in uh, in Massachusetts, outside of Boston. They still own it. And so he's got kind of aviation in his blood and was always around it. Um, and really worked his way up uh, to be able to do what he's doing. So
1: I found that it was interesting that he jumped right into aerobatics shortly after he soloed in that in that 150 Cessna. Yeah,
0: I know that's amazing. It's that, uh,
1: you got to get your body ready for that, and it's real demanding. It's grueling. I mean, it's hot in that cockpit, and it takes a lot of physical stamina and physical strength.
0: Yeah, and one thing that um, that Julie found is that he has always sort of been an athlete at heart, and he considers Red Bull an athletic event. You know, it's a race; they got to prepare for it. He talked about playing hockey when he was a kid, and now I guess he's a really uh, avid golfer. And so, yeah, absolutely, You've got to be physically prepared for that.
1: So he does a lot of cross training to stay fit.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And those pilot uh, cockpits are not so big in the first place, so you got to be slim yeah. and trim. And, and really they're like be... jockeys in there. It's like <laughs> they do. You got to <laughs> yeah. yank and bank it. It's almost like wearing an airplane. Yeah, when you're in one of those extras.
0: Yeah, that's right. So I I don't follow the race results really closely, but I have heard he is he's doing a little better this year because of some modifications to his airplane. I guess
1: they spent the off season really tweaking that airplane, Ian, and they've come up with a couple of ideas that are helping him climb up the top of that leaderboard a little bit quicker.
0: Yeah, I'd like to like to see some. See some Americans back on that. so It does seem to be dominated by the European crowd, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, which has always been amazing to me because obviously it's like there's no place in the world uh, more suitable for aviation than America. I mean, we have the biggest community and everything else, and it's the fact that you have these little pockets around the world that do really well, both in aerobatic competition and then here at the races. It's amazing.
1: It is. It's, it's interesting. It's a dichotomy of sorts because a lot of the aircraft are made over here in the States. Mm-hmm. So you would think that American pilots would be doing better. They'd be more familiar with it. They've Airspace is a little bit easier to get to and transition, that kind of thing. And we have more access to airplanes.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And cheaper to learn. That's right.
1: So they did a little pit stop at Sun and Fun, practiced up on their routine, and that, they went from Europe over to the Far East to
0: Japan. Yeah, and I think that's right. So, and then two races this year later in the year, if you want to check them out, uh, in the U.S., Indy, with, at the Brickyard, which is going to be awesome, I think. And then uh, at Vegas.
1: Vegas. Everything <laughs> stays in Vegas, that's right?
0: That's right. Yeah, that's right. I'm with
2: Michael Gillian at Sun and Fun. 2016. Hi, Michael. How are you?
3: Great. Great to be here, for sure.
2: How are you liking the show?
3: It's been a wonderful show. I have to say that the weather makes all the difference in the world. And And it's it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's been fantastic here. And so my air show flying has been really fun and, and spectacular. And really, to top it all off, we did a Red Bull Air Race demo here, which... I would say ninety-nine percent of the fans here at Sun and Fun had never seen, so it's had really, really great reviews.
2: What was that? What did you do?
3: So we actually set up uh, a mock track here at Sun and Fun. We had uh, five gates, and Kirby Chambliss and I both went out and did a mock demonstration. We did we did a simulated race, which was re- it was really fun. So we tried. The goal was to expose the people to it, but then also to educate them on the entire race process as well. Oh, cool. And did you win? <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to give away the secret or not. But I think Kirby won the first day. I think I, I definitely won yesterday, which made Kirby a little grumpy, so maybe they'll let him win today.
2: <laughs> so when you and I talked for the magazine article, which was in our um, May issue, you we talked about the fact, April issue, I'm sorry, we talked about the fact that when you started racing, Kirby said, just come on out and do it. Is that really true?
3: Yeah, honestly, that's really how it started. So my first race was in two thousand and four in Reno when it was really just still a demonstration and there was no set training camps or policies and procedures now. Well, like Kevin Coleman got the chance to go to a to a training camp and Kevin to learn. Coleman's the new one in the challenger class. Yeah, he's the he's the challenger pilot from the United States, a great guy. And they created this Challenger Cup, which is really a way for Red Bull to learn the personalities, the flying styles, all of the stuff of these guys, and then to see, and girls, and to see whether they can someday be a master class pilot. But you didn't have that experience. You just jumped right in. We jumped right in. How did that feel? It was, you know, honestly, it's a little scary, right? It's, uh, so it's different than air show flying. And for a guy like me that was experienced in low level flying, that was, that was, easier for me to make the transition but for somebody that comes from competition aerobatic flying where the bottom of the aerobatic box is 300 feet and now you're down at 60 there's much of a transition 60 yeah i don't think
2: when we talked i realized it was sixty. yeah it's
3: pretty low you're between about 45 and 60 feet so you're right down there so
2: how was that very very first flight
3: do you remember it (laughs) yeah you definitely remember it. it and it it seems in the beginning that your airplane can't fit between those two gates, right, between those two pylons. and But then as you get more and more comfortable, you know, you first start off going straight through the gate, and then as you get a little bit more comfortable, you make a little bit of an angle and a little bit more of an angle and a little bit more of an angle. And today in the air race, with all of the technology that we have basically showing us how to fly, the angles that you can get through the gates are pretty extreme. So it's come a long way since 2004. So
2: people describe, or your your type of flying has been described as you attack it. Do you think that's how you fly?
3: Uh, yeah. I guess a lot of people say that that's, that's the way that I fly. So from an airshow perspective or an aerobatic competition perspective, I tried to always extract as much out of the airplane as I could. And it really comes from a couple of things. Leo Labenslager, who some of the people may remember, was really the icon of American aerobatic flying in the 80s. And he he really was the person that made the monoplane, the extras and the sukois and all these airplanes that we have now, prolific in competition aerobatics. And it gave the pilots the ability to pull a lot of Gs, to roll really fast so you could make a very dynamic-looking performance. And I've always tried to do that. And then another guy, Clint McHenry, who's a great American, uh, aerobatic pilot, said to me, Michael, every time you move the flight controls, you have to do it 100% full deflection every time. And you will make mistakes, but over time your mistakes will get less and less and less and less, but the aggression stays there. So today, I I prescribe to that theory still, but now it's all muscle memory. It's the only way that I know how to do it. And, And I want people to be able to watch me fly in an air show no matter what airplane color I may be in to say, "Oh, that's Ghoulian in the air because I can tell that's his style, and
2: I talked to Kevin Coleman yesterday, um and he said exactly that he said, "I can look up and see, and I know that's Kirby and I know that's Michael yeah, yep. <laughs> um, so what would you say that is? Can you describe what that is
3: that someone would see? It's just your personality in the sky, right that's and it, and I think there's there's a bunch of levels of flying air shows. It's it's getting out and and doing the maneuvers in front of people, but then there's the person that can actually communicate to the audience with their plane, and that's it's an intangible. You can't. There's no there's no f- flip of a switch or anything. And it took me quite a long time to get there, but it, it's it's your expression through the plane, and it's it's how you present the flight to the people. It's the aggression that you have in the plane. It's the music that you have. It's the narration that you make all to get to put together to make the people excited, thrilled, sad, reflective, whatever it is that you want them to be through your flying. And that's sort of the highest level. And I'm not sure that there's a lot of people that get there or that they think they get there. And I'm sure some days I have it and some days I don't but it's sort of the ultimate for me but if you if you could go to a word could you say for example um i like i would like
2: my my show to celebrate flying or i'd like my show to inspire i'd like my show to make people happy is there a, an a, we don't have to find that if we can Well, can't. I think you'd
3: want it to be all three of those, no. <laughs> right? So you definitely want them to feel like you're celebrating in the sky and you want them to be happy and inspired. Inspired mostly um, because when I got out of the airplane, what I want is for people to realize that, hey, that was a, that was a person in this airplane that gave absolutely 100% of everything that they had to make that thing as good as it can be. So when I saw you at Las Vegas, um,
2: mm-hmm. the last race of 2015, um, saw you in the beginning preparing for the race, and you did something called the can dance. Yeah. Can you tell us what the can dance is? So
3: it's uh, the, the the dancing that we do, which is I actually at Center Fund, somebody came up to me and said, I thought you were losing your mind and talking to yourself out there on the ramp. <laughs> uh, what it is, it's really a visualization technique, and it starts from competition aerobatic. Flying. So if you go to a competition, you'll see 20 people in corners of hangars in the ramp walking around in circles with their eyes closed and dancing and moving. And really what we're doing is visualizing the way that we want the airplane to look to the crowd. We think about the positioning of the airplane over the ground. We think about where the airplane is in space on the runway, the flight control positions you're going to move and what you're going to do. and It's basically practicing the flight before you do the flight.
2: What is the hardest part about the flight?
3: The wind is usually the biggest part of the flight. And so, you know, to go back to Las Vegas, that's that's exactly what we do. We put these Red Bull cans on the ground in the hangar. And since our background, most of the pilots come from a competition aerobatic background, that's how we prepare for the flight, which is kind of funny. So probably a military guy might do it a little differently. So maybe Matt Hall from Australia might not do it like we do it, but that's exactly what we're doing in the back of the hangar there is, is visualizing the angle through the gates and the G and where the wind's going to come from. And like we just said, the wind, it's the factor in there that changes everything. And and that's why a little bit of the race, there's some luck in, in everything that happens there. So, um, a headwind that changes to a crosswind reduces the the speed of the plane coming through the start gate compared to the next guy and gives them a two second a two tenth or a three tenth of a second advantage. It's just all those little things, but what really it, the wind.
2: What does it feel like when you feel like you've just you got that time, you got that right time? It's
3: supposed to be easy, oh. right? And that's that's the thing is when you're doing your best, everything slows down, time stands stills, stands still, and the gates get very wide apart and you can see the airplane going through the gate at a big angle and you can see two gates ahead. And, and it's just, it's magic, right? It's, I hate to use this expression, but it's what a lot of people say when you're in the zone, right? And that's what, that's what you're trying to get. Did you have that moment at all in Vegas? Yeah. I, you know, I had it a lot last year and we have a a really great team and we had a, we had an okay airplane, right? It was probably about a, I don't know, a 10th or 11th place airplane. And we, we flew, I think, Last year, more consistently than any other racer on the field, maybe with the exception of Matt Hall. Matt Matt had a really, really consistently um, high-performance year, but we did the same thing. It's just that our airplane was a little bit slower. So, you know, after Abu Dhabi, we we basically flew up almost a penalty-free year and had some really great results and then had some mediocre results, but essentially flew to the potential of our team every time, which was what which was what made me happy with the result at the end of the year. And
2: you did modifications for this year.
3: Yeah, so we, uh, at the middle of last year, realized, okay, we've got a nice solid platform to start from with this plane, but it is nowhere near cutting edge. And we were always a team where we would come to the racetrack and look around the, the paddock and say, what is everybody else doing to make their airplanes fast? And it's not a great place to be, to be trying to follow everybody else. And so we just gave 100% effort all winter long, really starting the day after Las Vegas, that airplane was on its way and in Oklahoma, starting a process. And we we probably spent the equivalent of six months, hotel nights in in North Carolina, working the airplane. And we did from seven in the morning until 10 o'clock at night for months on end. And now I think, When we come to the racetrack, people are looking at our airplane to say, why is it different and how is it different? And that's a, it's a big turnaround and it's already shown in our performance, uh, in Abu Dhabi this year that, Hey, we have an airplane that is competitive and that's all you can ask for. Do
2: you want to talk about what you did to
3: it? Yeah. I mean, you know, we did, uh, there's a, there's a million little things that we did and then some big visible things. So everybody sees winglets, right? And that, that's the most visible thing that we did, um, and that, that was really a year-long process and just to design them and then to make sure from a CFD standpoint, an airflow analysis standpoint, that they are the right thing. And it's just so complex with how much twist they have and how much angle. And, oh, my gosh, we spend just hours and hours on those. And then once they're built, are they strong enough and how do you test them? And then the installation angle on the wing. And it just looks like, oh, yeah, you have winglets. But really, <laughs> it's just I don't know how many hours we have on those things, but maybe a thousand. And wasn't Just,
2: there like a skin or something change that you did? Take? Yeah.
3: So in addition to that, we did a thing called shark skin, which is a, a process that's on the top of our wing now, which Hannes Arc was using last year. And also some of the Formula One cars use it as well, which if you read uh, the NASA reports of this, that was done back uh, a bunch of years ago, you could get as much of a 4% gain in, in lift. And then, We looked at cooling drag, how the airflow comes into the cowling and how it exits and how it cools the engine. So we've done quite a good job at that. And then we really changed everything on the airplane. So cowling changed, the canopy changed, the turtle deck behind my head changed, the belly panel changed, the wheel pants changed. Uh, Does that
2: throw you off at all? Because now it's almost like a new plane to you?
3: It is like a new airplane, except the wing and the tail are the same. So it feels like the same airplane. But now it's amazing. I can, you can feel it, and it's an amazing feeling. You can feel the airplane pulling you through the sky. Wow. It's really cool. Now, one of the things you said just now
2: reminds me of what we talked about, too, is that one of the hardest parts about what you do is time
3: on the road. And who do you miss it, the most? It is. <laughs> so here we are in Sun and Fun. We left two weeks ago, and we just did an air show in Key West last weekend. So we've been, yeah, this is about day 15 or 16 on the road for us. We'll be home tomorrow. But your your family, you miss your family a lot. And uh, my 10-year-old daughter is now at home making a gingerbread house. And we're going to have a little bit of gingerbread when I get home tomorrow. And that'll be kind of fun. (laughs) So why do you do what you do? Well, you know, I a lot of people ask me how I got started, and, and my family owns a flying school outside of Boston, so I started flying as a kid, and I just learned aerobatics because I just thought it was going to be fun, and, and it's something that I saw in a movie, and um, I, I tell people I started and I was just too stupid to stop, right? <laughs> uh, but the, the truth of the matter is that I am just so incredibly lucky to be able to fly in air shows around America, fly in the air race around the world, so it... You know, it sounds corny to say that it's a dream, but I'm not sure I'd want any other flying job in the world. It's really awesome.
2: So what's next? What comes after all of this?
3: So, you know, one of the things that's funny is that I love business as much as I love flying and competing and performing. And I just, I love understanding people and creating something, whether it's an airshow performance in the air or it's with a business. So we're looking at starting a new aviation business back in Plymouth, Massachusetts, which... Hopefully it'll be something that a lot of people will gravitate to and we want it to be sort of industry changing and special. And so it'll, it'll take on uh, a, a life of its own and I can't wait to do that.
2: Okay, one last thing. You told me you love golf. Why aren't you watching the Masters today? Uh, well,
3: what people don't know is just before I go flying in the airplane, I'll have the themasters.com on my phone watching, and then after I'm done, I'll go back to that. So I've been watching. I'm sitting in my hotel room watching every night. Well, thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I mean, it's just been, it's been a pleasure. And, and uh, you know, to be a little bit of a part of the AOPA family and – do some of the hat in the ring stuff with them and to be an ambassador for aviation in general it's an honor for me it's something that i never thought that i would get the chance to do and i don't know how much of an impact that i make but i certainly have a lot of fun doing it
2: well we're thrilled to have you and actually thank you for that that that's great thanks my pleasure thank you
0: (laughs) all right dave so would you fly through pylon like mike
1: I'd love to fly through a pylon like that, but I'm afraid to just split them, (laughs) crash the plane. I don't know. That's
0: all right. They put them back up in like a minute and a half or something crazy like that. They do zip
1: them together in about 30 seconds. In fact, Paul O'Hareb had a really nice piece on inside one of the pylons. That
0: was cool on ALTW. yeah, Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So uh, next time I think we're going to be talking, it'll be right after Beaufort, hopefully. Beaufort has a lot of folks
1: uh, already ahead of time that have signed up for that. I think it's going to be a very popular flying, a good regional
0: flying on the East Coast. Yeah, that's going to be fun. And then uh, we're also going to have one of AOPA's favorites, Ron Machado. He's going to be talking among other things, about the new airman certification standards.
1: He is so cool. If you've never seen Rod in person, he's a funny guy. And really, his books are so good and so helpful to people. I really mm-hmm. like him.
0: All right, so Dave, we'll see you next time. Uh, in the meantime, go to iTunes, go to the AOPA website, download the episodes of Hangar Talk, and uh, we'll, we'll talk next time.
1: Thanks for joining us on Hangar Talk. See you all then. <laughs>